for God's sake, how much more carnage are we willing to accept? How many more innocent American lives must be taken before we say enough, enough? Let's meet the moment. Let us finally do something. What does it take to get a more in-depth look into the week's top local news stories? The Debrief brings you inside for a one-on-one -on -one conversation with our reporters every week, right here, right now. The Debrief. After a series of mass shootings from a supermarket in Buffalo to a school in Texas to a hospital in Tulsa, naturally, tragically, the national conversation has once again turned to gun control. But while Republicans and Democrats in Congress once again strain to find any common ground on guns, the U.S. Supreme Court is about to decide a case that could invalidate a whole host of gun laws that are already on the books. That case originates right here in New York. Welcome to The Debrief. I'm Chris Glorioso. We will hear argument this morning in case 2843, New York State Rifle and Pistol Association versus Bruin. New York State Rifle and Pistol Association versus Bruin is a case brought by gun owners in upstate New York who say the law here is unconstitutional because it leaves it up to local officials to decide whether a person has good reason to get a concealed carry permit. In effect, this is the very law that makes it so difficult to carry a firearm in New York City. I'm joined now by John Jay College of Criminal Justice Associate Professor Warren Eller. He is writing a book on gun policy across the United States. And depending upon how the Supreme Court rules here, he may need to wait a little bit longer to write the ending. Professor Eller, thanks for joining us. Hey, it's great to be here. How big a deal is this Supreme Court case? This case could be a very big deal. Uh, it may be nothing, but it, it likely will be a very big deal because it's going to affect gun policy, not just in New York, but in several of the states that have had uh, far more um, restrictive policies across the country. When we think about New York, we often think of it as a state that has some of the most restrictive policies. Is that fair to say? Uh, it's certainly fair to say, and especially if you're talking about the city. The way, uh, the, the crux of this case is that New York has what they call a May issue law for concealed carry permits. We basically break concealed carry permits up into two different types, a shall issue and a may issue. Shall issue permits simply say that as long as an individual meets some sort of threshold, then they shall be issued a permit by the state. New York differs in that it's a uh, may issue state, which means that once a person has cleared a uh, certain threshold, the state still has the discretion as to whether or not they'll issue a permit or not. And it's one of, of several states that still has this system in the U.S. Do we have many concealed carry permits on the streets of New York City, for example? No, um, the, that's the short answer. Given the size of New York City, the number of, of concealed carry permits are, is pretty trivial. Uh, currently. And, and certainly if you compare it to other areas by population, it's, it's a very, very trivial number. And is that primarily because the NYPD, the, the licensing agency, doesn't find a lot of reason to give a lot of people guns that they can conceal and carry? I, I think that's a fair characterization. I think uh, there's been, there's a history in New York of guns being uh, more trouble than they are help. 
and there's a, a prevailing attitude in the state uh, that the, the folks who have chosen to live in the city just don't want that culture. If the high court decides New York's law is unconstitutional, do you think it is fair to expect that we are going to see a lot more pistols, guns, firearms on the streets of New York City, in the crowded subways of New York City, and so forth? I don't think so. I, I think there's a couple barriers, uh, the first of which is simply the barrier to purchasing a firearm in New York. New York has a, a long, long process compared to other states in buying a handgun. And that process itself is both expensive and restrictive. The second thing is once you have come up with that, you've got to find a place where you can buy that firearm. Now, during the pandemic, we've had a, a pretty big shortage of firearms across the U.S. There were big, big buying sprees back uh, in 2000. Uh, so the question is, what sort of inventory is there to send to New York? And then when are they actually going to open the gun stores that would make these things available? So there's, there's plenty of, of checkpoints. I would also suspect that the state has a host of people who are already working on creating uh, legislation to pass that will, that will create additional barriers as we try to figure out what to do with this hurdle. So I don't think we're going to see a flood of new guns the day after the decision. In oral argument, the Supreme Court justices, some of them seem to be expressing skepticism about New York's law, leading a lot of analysts to believe that they are going to overturn this law. I How would you summarize, for example, that a regulation that says you can't carry a gun into, you know, giant stadium uh, just because a lot of things are going on there and it may not be safe to have for people to have guns. On the other hand, if the purpose of the Second Amendment is to allow people to protect themselves, that's implicated when you're in a high crime area. It's not implicated when you're out in the woods. How would you summarize that skepticism? Uh, I think that's reasonable. And let me qualify that by saying I'm not an expert in the courts. In fact, that's the one area of, of politics I don't study very much. Uh, but I, I think it's a fair skepticism. Right. There are plenty of other states that haven't faced this challenge. And part of the reason they, that New York is facing this challenge is because we've created a very heroic ba uh, bar within the city for firearm ownership, uh, both regular ownership as well as permits to carry and transportation. And there's plenty of reason to see that these are, are bias uh, permit issuance. And, uh, you know, if by nothing else, then by income. The cost to acquire a pistol in New York before you get to actually own the pistol is, is approaching $500. Uh, and that alone is a pretty big barrier to uh, when it comes to income. Um, you mentioned uh, other, other states. Uh, New York, again, thought of as having one of the toughest gun laws, but we are certainly not alone here in having restrictive gun laws. Um, how could this case impact places like New Jersey, like Illinois, like California? Depending on what the court does, right? The court can rule pretty narrowly, and it's done that a lot in the past. And it's also passed up a number of opportunities to address this issue since Haller. Uh, so there's the chance, uh, and I don't think it's a trivial chance, that the court can, can make a pretty narrow ruling. Uh, if they were to completely, uh, completely uh, invalidate New York's laws. I think that spells a lot of problems uh, in New Jersey and in uh, California. Um, where does that leave, where would that leave someone like Mayor Adams, who is struggling mightily to try to get a handle on the gun violence problem and, and so far not having enough luck? 
Well, Mayor Adams also hasn't had very much time. Uh, it, this is a tough challenge. He lost a, a significant portion of the city's law enforcement and uh, the city's suffering from a number of problems as well as the firearms violence. So he's, he's got a pretty heroic climb and I think we've got to give him more than a couple of months to get past that. We started off by talking about the mass shootings in Buffalo, in Texas, in Tulsa, and we really see this national debate centering on this very familiar tug of war between Republicans and Democrats. Democrats saying the only obvious thing to do here is to provide more restrictions on gun ownership, and Republicans, many of them saying the answer here is arming teachers, more armed security, uh, and, and things like that. Do the justices have any sympathy for that argument that perhaps more guns can provide for more safety and security? I'm sure the justices do. The thing about being a justice, though, is you've often got to set aside your own values, beliefs to really focus on on the consistency of the law. But the question is, at what point do they cheat the system and make a finding that's politically convenient, or do they force the Congress to actually do their job? What do you mean by that? How could Congress essentially circumvent this decision and make it very clear uh, that, that, that uh, this kind of gun control is, is uh, I guess, constitutional? Well, the first thing they could do is they could actually pass legislation that starts affecting these sorts of issues and let Congress slug this out as opposed to the individual states doing it. The second thing we could do is Congress could easily help move towards a constitutional amendment and actually clarify the Second Amendment. We've had two pretty, uh, pretty significant prevailing interpretations of that uh, amendment. And it would certainly be something worth revisiting, but th there's certainly not the political will in Congress to do that. Um, at one point in oral argument on this case, Justice Breyer brought up concerns that even the most responsible citizen uh, who is law-abiding can get angry, can have one too many drinks. And if we have too many law-abiding citizens with legal gun ownership, it's inevitable that we're going to have more gun violence. Uh, how do you view that point. Does the research bear that out? I, I, yes and no. Um, I, I think the thing that we have to look at, I mean, he's exactly right. There is no way to get around the fact that uh, N plus one guns means some increase in the likelihood of accidents or mistakes or what have you. The last time I looked at uh, actual projections of what the civilian owned arsenal was in the United States was 2003. And that's when I decided that uh, a conservative estimate of over 350 million privately owned firearms, that that was a significant enough number for me. Uh, we have since that time added a tremendous uh, additional number of firearms to the civilian arsenal. And we have up until very recently seen a decrease in the number of accidents and the numbers of uh, homicides and the numbers of suicides. So I think it's, uh, I don't think what we should be doing is anticipating a tremendous increase in the number of accidents, given that the history for the last decade plus, uh, actually almost two decades since the nineties has been decreasing numbers of accidents even with an increasing number of firearms. But haven't there been an increase in mass shooting incidents? Isn't that really what a lot of these gun restrictions are about? Yes and no. 
there has been, depending on whose measure that you use, there are several different definitions of mass shootings. Looking at the FBI's uh, description up until about 2000, there hasn't been a tremendous change. There's been a year or two of spikes. But what we also have to remember is that this is a pretty rare event. So one or two or three incidents dramatically affect that number when we talk about it in terms of percentages. Now, a few interest groups have used uh, their own measures, and they have not taken out things like gang shootings, uh, shootings with other obvious causes. And so the number looks more elevated. And even when we do that, it's still, right, these horrendous acts are still a trivial portion of the deaths by firearms, right? So we have 30,000 deaths by firearms every year, give or take. And it's been higher in the last two or three years since the pandemic has hit. Uh, with that, two-thirds of that are suicides. One-third of those are homicides. Some of those are justifiable homicides, right? and a very trivial portion are accidental deaths, accidental shootings. Um, a large portion of those shootings are criminal or gang-related, and a very trivial portion are these most horrific events that we keep talking about, uh, and for good reason, right? It's, it's highly salient seeing a bunch of 8 to 10-year-olds, 8 to 12-year-olds being murdered for no apparent reason. Uh, it's a horrific scene. But if we really want to talk about gun violence in the United States, that's not really the biggest portion of gun violence. No, it's not. But there's no question that at times like this, when you have so many mass shootings happening in a very condensed period of time, everyone's mind goes to this disparity where you see gun violence and gun deaths in the United States just so far ahead of any other civilized country in the world, any country in the world, where does that leave the Second Amendment and the court's role here to try to help us figure out the path forward? Well, and remember, the court's role is not to help us try to figure out a path forward. The court's role is to interpret law in relation to the Constitution. It's up to legislatures and policymakers to make policy that improve these things for us. Right, but I mean, I, 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 would, I would push back a little bit there because that's exactly what we had in New York, policymakers who came up with a law here. And the court does have to decide how to move forward because they have to decide how to interpret the Second Amendment and how the Second Amendment applies to that law. That's what I mean. And that's fair, that's fair. Uh, I think, again, until we see what we see, it's gonna be tough to say exactly what it looks like. But I think, uh, I think the court will continue to struggle to remain agnostic. Uh, and I think it's going to wind up, it's always going to wind up back in the desk of lawmakers. Uh, and the question is, what can we do nationally? Because one of the problems I think we have is that when you look at New York law, what's being contested now before the Supreme Court, it's not in step with what we see in a lot of places. And because it's discretionary, that discretion, that discretion may or may not be consistent with the biases in the application of the law. Um, I, I want to end on this point, which is you, you study gun laws around the country. You're writing a book about gun laws around the country. In your view, what is the right balance? Are our gun laws tough enough or do we need them to be tougher? That's a really tough question. Uh, it would be nice. I don't tend to study I differ a little bit and I differ a lot from folks who do public health. Public health is very much a science of advocacy. 
Uh, I am very much uh, in the agnostic research. And the question that I always look at is not, should we have, should we not have guns? Uh, it's that they're here and how do we prevent these problems? And I'm not sure when we look at the advent of ghost guns, CNC machining, um, that the, the easy access to where we can actually print lower receivers for firearms on a printer that we could buy at Best Buy, uh, that looking at the regulation of manufacturers, doing things like Congress is doing where we're trying to push costs onto manufacturers to basically uh, make the marketplace uh, untenable for them. Uh, I, I don't know how that's going to work out. Um, what I want to see are I want to see reasonable policies that are enacted that uh, prevent the loss of life. And there are a bunch of things. Uh, the governor came out with a number of, of proposals, which are pretty strong. And there are other places where we could quickly improve what we're doing to improve the oversight of firearms in the general population. I know you said it's basically impossible to predict how the court is going to decide, but I'm going to ask you to predict. To predict. Do you think the Supreme Court is going to overturn New York's gun law? Uh, look, I'm going to tell you, I'm a, I'm a Ph.D. because what we do is, is we ridicule things with, uh, in the, the view of hindsight, right? That's what we do professionally. Uh, prediction is not our strong suit. With that, I would suspect that we are going to see... Uh, this, we're going to see this law uh, curtailed at least some extent. I would think that uh, the outcome is going to be that they're going to require that there be some sort of, of shall issue uh, statute as opposed to remaining a may issue. And I think largely that's going to come down to the disparities in access to firearms, right? Those people who are ruled out of having that constitutional right. Um, I don't think that that will preclude a number of regulatory changes that can happen to, to sort of maintain the status quo. Uh, and I would hope that it's a rather narrow decision as opposed to being a, a very sweeping decision. Warren Eller is associate professor at John Jay College of Criminal Justice. He is currently writing and rewriting a book about gun laws across the country. Professor Eller, thanks for joining us on The Debrief. Thank you for having me. For Melissa Mack, Ben Berkowitz, Kiki Inarazawan, and the whole debrief team, I'm Chris Glorioso. Thanks for joining us. Uh -huh.